This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. As we've been talking about uh, here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, is in Hamilton today for his second in a series of town hall meetings. Today's will be at McMaster University. But uh, before that, in a very busy itinerary here in Hamilton, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Mr. Prime Minister. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Bill, for having me on. Let's uh, talk a little bit about this whole concept of town hall meetings. I got a pretty good sense of what people may want to be talking to you about today, Prime Minister, here at McMaster University when you do the town hall meeting. But what do you hope to get out of these these sessions? Well, these are these are first of all an opportunity to hear directly from people. What uh, what uh, people who sort of mobilize come out to uh, to ask their prime minister questions, to be part of the democratic process. It's uh, great to hear what's on their mind. I always learn uh, a whole lot, uh, and it's also nice for me to be able to share not just my answers but my thinking around things. I you get longer than than you do on, in question period or in press conferences. And I get to share sort of uh, my reflections on how we tackle a given problem uh, in a way that, uh, that, that both uh, helps me um, analyze my own thinking, but also connects uh, to the way people think about the problems in their lives. One of the things that, that I love to see any elected leader do is to get outside the bubble, get outside the Ottawa <laughs> bubble in your case, uh, uh, and, and, and listen to everyday people, listen to the coffee shop uh, discussions, and, and for that matter, the radio talk show discussions, uh, because we get feedback on a daily basis from, from uh, Canadian voters as well. And, and I, I know that you heard a little bit about this last night in the meeting in Halifax, Prime Minister, but, and you may well hear about it again here in Hamilton, but a lot of the discussion these days, as, as you know, has focused on, on ethics. Uh, and, and there's a, a series of things that people are talking about. I mean, the photo op with, uh, with Joshua Boyle and, of course, the subsequent charges against Mr. Boyle, the, the vacation with the Aga Khan, the, the Cotter payment. You heard about a lot of this stuff last night, I know. You grew up in a political environment, and, and you know that even the perception of wrongdoing can, can be detrimental to a government like that. Maybe there were no ethical things broken. Maybe there were no laws broken. But there is some question about bad judgment. How do you respond to that? And how do you how do you try to to rectify that? Well, I think uh, as as I said clearly, uh, obviously on on any question of of vacations, uh, uh, whether it's with uh, a family friend or not, uh, we're going to be clearing uh, every step of the way with the ethics commissioner in advance, uh, and that's certainly something that. Uh, uh, that we have learned uh, through this this whole experience that uh, absolutely I would have done differently if uh, if uh, if we had to do it all over again. Uh, but on on issues like Omar Sadr, uh it's not an issue of ethics. It's an issue of uh, doing what's right, even though it's uh, highly unpopular. And people are right to be frustrated that uh, uh, that we uh, made a payment to uh, to Omar Sadr of money that could have gone to uh, to different things or better things. Uh, but it's important that people understand that there have to be consequences when governments uh, do not stand up to defend or even actively uh, you know, compromise uh, a Canadian's rights, uh, regardless of whether they're popular or unpopular or it's politically easy or hard. You know, these are lessons that we have to learn that are, that are difficult ones, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very serene about the fact that we had to do that even though it, it frustrates me like it frustrates all Canadians. And the more we remember uh, how frustrated we are, uh, the more it will ensure that no government uh, in the future, the way governments in the past did, uh, compromises the fundamental rights of Canadians. In hindsight, did the government do as good a job as it could have 
in explaining why this happened. And, and I use this as a point of reference, and I know this came up in the discussion, was the Mararar payment from some years ago uh, for a very similar circumstance. I mean, there were an apples and oranges comparison, but, I mean, the amount of money and, and the rationales, there were some very strong similarities there. Uh, y- yes, uh, I mean it's it's a question of of uh, I mean uh, Mararar was uh, somewhat uh, more sympathetic for many people than uh, than Omar Khadr is and was, but the, the the fact remains that this isn't about the individual or their behaviors. This is actually about governments taking responsibility for their own behavior. And previous governments uh, allowed uh, an individual's rights to be violated, regardless of what that individual did or didn't do, that should never have happened. And the more we stay uh, you know, angry uh, and vocal about having had to, uh, all of us, to collectively pay, um, the better the chances that no government of the future will ever find uh, it uh, worthwhile to uh, violate someone's rights. With uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, Prime Minister, another hot-button issue that we've had a great discussion about here on our program over the last number of months is uh, is uh, proper treatment of uh, wounded veterans. And I know you made that a key point of your election platform a couple of years ago, and uh, and promises were made then. And uh, you promised that, that, unlike the previous government, that you would be fair and, and compassionate with our wounded and disabled veterans. Uh, yet the government continued the court case out in British Columbia that basically argued that the government had no moral responsibility to, to those Canadian heroes. Why did you do that? Well, I think uh, we, we need to we need to understand we have to get it right for our veterans. We have to make sure that we are fulfilling our sacred obligations. And whereas governments of the past uh, tended to just write a check uh, to a, an injured or wounded veteran and say, okay, uh, there you go, um, try and make do, uh, we're washing our hands of you. Uh, it's much more important to provide services. That's why we reopened the uh, nine veteran services offices, why we're providing more support for families, for caregivers, why we're creating more programs for, uh, for rehabilitation and for uh, reintegration and for workplace training. These kinds of things also go along uh, with uh, with the investments we have to make in, in veterans in their future. That's why we're uh, returning uh, to uh, lifetime benefits for, uh, for our most injured veterans. These are things that, uh, that Canadians know matter. And unfortunately, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to please everyone. And some people are going to want uh, more uh, than, uh, than the fiscal frame is uh, able to bear. But uh, we know that doing right by uh, our veterans, particularly after they've been uh, not done right by, uh, you know, for many years, uh, is, uh, is, is a priority. And I, I'm, I'm very pleased with how uh, people are responding to our, our, uh, our, our, our moving forward on this. So many things that we could talk about, and I, I know that a lot of the stuff we're just going to have to wait until the, you've got a little more time when you can join us here in studio and talk about some of these issues. But uh, just to, to wrap up, because I know that your time is tight, Prime Minister, uh, to, to go back again a couple of years, and I'm just trying to echo some of the sentiments that we hear on the program here on CHML uh, from our listeners and from Canadian voters. Uh, a lot of people in the last election took a chance on your government. Uh, they were disenchanted with uh, the previous administration. And uh, they heard your promises about veterans. They heard your promises about uh, more transparency, about eliminating political and, and governmental scandals. And, and, and they heard the promises about the economy as well. I mean, that was really at the core of our platform. It was the core of our approach. That's what I'll be talking about today, where what we did and what we chose to do uh, was invest in Canadians again, invest in infrastructure, because the country needed investment, the country needed growth. and. 
it's paying off. We have the highest growth rate in, in the G7 right now. Unemployment is at a record low level. Uh, and, and people are feeling confident about their jobs and their future again. I mean, there's still a lot more work to do. But that happened because we knew that investing in Canadians, particularly Canadians who need the help, uh, is the way to grow the economy. And that's, that's, what we, that's the commitment we made, and that's what we're living up to. Quick question for you, just a 10-second answer if I could, Prime Minister. Uh, I'll use the football analogy. It's halftime. You're halfway through the mandate right now. According to the polls, you're, you're winning. Uh, but some people are concerned about your performance. What can the government do to, to, to win the hearts and minds of those voters who may be a little skeptical at this stage? Oh, continue, continue to work hard on uh, what Canadians uh, elected us to do, which is make sure that uh, our future is stronger and brighter and that we're uh, uh, investing in the middle class and, and those working hard to join it. That, that focus uh, has uh, served our economy well, it has served Canadians well, uh, and it's what we're going to continue to do while, uh, while um, you know, doing, uh, always looking to, to do it better uh, every step of the way. Very quick plug, of course, uh, this afternoon, McMaster University, the town hall meeting with uh, the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. Mr. Prime Minister, uh, thank you so much for the time today. Great talking with you. Thank you very much. It's great to be back in Hamilton. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, only six months after emerging from bankruptcy protection, is Stelco planning a steel manufacturing renaissance? There are rumors, I've had a number of people from the plant who have called me and hey, you know what's going on? Uh, and is is this the the phoenix rising from the ashes? Well, let's ask Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, that very thing. Marvin, how are you this morning? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. And, and here's the good news: I'll give you more than five minutes. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and please be clear with your answers. Okay. Uh, as you always are with us. They'll be graded later on. Of course. <laughs> always the professor. Right. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about this. So, boy, I, I tell you, this, and you and I have had this discussion mm. ever since the days of CCAA and, and some pretty ugly times. I mean, there were some questions not too long ago as to whether or not the doors were ever going to be opened at this place now. Mm-hmm. And now I'm starting to hear that uh, this, you know what, they're going to fire the ovens up again, everything's going to be happening. Are we getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here? So I'm going to say yes to that. Let me let me take you back a little bit in context. So you'll remember that we had this creditor protection. It went through, and I think most people assumed, myself probably included, that it came to an end on June 30th when ownership of Stelco was transferred to Bedrock and it seemed to stand on its own two feet. It actually did not end there because the land company, the company that's supposed to own all the land, had not yet been created. So until all of the pieces to the puzzle are complete, you're still technically under the CCAA process. As a result, in December, the monitor, this is the person the court uses to make sure the, uh, you know, the CCAA process is moving forward, filed a report. Now, in that report, the monitor said that uh, the mo- basically the monitor was put in charge of the land co, and, and that was the one sole responsibility going forward to keep the land co uh, project going. The monitor noted that, uh, I guess it would have been in early 2017, a uh, site study had indicated that there were three smokestacks on the Stelco property that were um, destabilizing. Because they had not been used and no maintenance had been done on them, they were becoming a bit of a hazard. And so the monitor sought approval from the court to demolish them, and the court agreed to do this. Uh, um, Proposals were solicited, a bid was chosen, and uh, in July or August, those smokestacks were supposed to have been demolished. 
Well, before that happened, the new owners, Bedrock, said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can, can we just send our own person in to do an investigation of these smokestacks? Uh, the, the monitor said, sure, go ahead, knock yourself out. We'll delay the demolition. Um, the company took a look, and they said, you know, for a relatively small investment, we can actually stabilize these. Uh, would you mind if we do that? And the monitor said, no, no, go ahead, knock yourself out. We'll cancel the demolition contract. And that's what's happened. There's been some investment, relatively small investment, to stabilize these smokestacks. Now, what does all of this mean? I think what it means is that the new owners wanted to keep all the infrastructure intact until they can figure out all the things they want to do. We here in Hamilton would love to hear that one of the three or two of the three or maybe all three of the three uh, uh, basic oxygen furnaces were going to be rebuilt and turned back on and steel would once again be made at Stelco here in Hamilton. That would be a wonderful outcome. That's not anything that's on the table. Stelco has not said that. What they've said is they want to keep their options open. Remember, their goal is to start selling more steel. Uh, right now, they can produce all the steel they need down at the Nanticoke Works, so they aren't in need of more capacity. But if their dream comes true and they can rewin some of these contracts for the um, car industry, they may very well need more steel-making capacity, and so they've got it here. So and the way I look at it, Bill, is that they spent probably a million or $2 million to do a certain amount of maintenance work on those smokestacks to keep their options open. And I'll give this back to you in one second. One other little wrinkle to all of this story, of course, is that we're not the only city watching all of this development. Up in the Sioux, there's a lot of talk about the future of Algoma, and there was a hope that Bedrock might, might, also make a play for those assets and then put the two of them together, put the Algoma assets and the Stelco assets together. Now, if they do that, then they may not need steel-making capacity in Hamilton because they could have it in the Sioux. But, of course, if they don't get the Algoma assets and sales go up, they may need it here in Hamilton. So I view this as a company trying to keep Plan A, Plan B, Plan C, Plan D all alive. And for a relatively small investment, they were able to do that. All right. So they've, they've, they're not going to knock those things down, and that's good. But my and here's here's where we get into some of the speculation I, because i've had some folks who have contacted me anonymously mm-hmm. and said you know and they have access to information mm-hmm. there some of them actually have been in the plant they tell me mm-hmm. and i'll i'll take them at their word on this and they tell me that there's a lot of discussion about those blast furnaces because uh, obviously if, what would what go to the smokestacks unless they were going to be hooked up and, and restart those blast furnaces exactly uh, and and they're saying that actually they have heard although there's nobody that can confirm this at least that i've been able to find so far They've already hired a firm, uh, I believe, out of Sudbury to do an assessment about the blast furnaces. So are, are they at least sniffing around with this idea of, of uh, uh, getting the blast furnace up again and running? Yeah, not, not that it's my job to stoke your rumor mill, but I think I can take it even a step farther. I've had a very good uh, source tell me that uh, I think this would be about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, probably in the middle of December, uh, not only did they sort of do an investigation, but they started to plug a few things in to see. So they actually ran some electrical current to the blast furnaces. How does that connection work? How much effort is it going to take to rebuild some of those? And generally speaking, they were pleasantly surprised, meaning that it, it wasn't going to take as much effort as most of us thought to have to restart those blast furnaces. Now, look, I don't want to minimize this. You're still going to be talking about investments of tens of millions of dollars. To well, I, I heard, yeah, this individual, this same source told me it could be in the neighborhood of $200 million. That, that's yeah. pretty substantial. Well, each blast furnace is on the order of 25 to $50 million. If you're going to do 
all three and other things. Yeah, you'd be looking at upwards of $200 million. But the good news was that the connections, many of the things they would need to have still seem to be intact and still seem to be in fairly good shape. So I, I think they are sniffing around. But remember, I still want to think of it in the context of plan A, B, C, and D. Obviously, plan A is to win back the, these contracts and sell all the steel you can produce. One of the dilemmas that the old Stelco had wasn't on the production side. They didn't shut it down because uh, the, you know they didn't want to produce steel. They wanted to produce steel, but you'd only produce steel if you can sell it. And, they, and U.S. Steel was not selling that steel, so they said there's no need to have this blast furnace. Now, if the new Stelco under Bedrock can win contracts, and those contracts say, I need more steel, I need more source of steel, perhaps even more than what Nanticoke provide if they're doing two or three shifts a day, then it makes perfect sense to start to rebuild these. Also, it's not a quick process. The rebuild and the restart would probably take the better part of 12 to 18 months. So you really need to be thinking longer term here. And I think it's an option on the table. Alan Kestenbaum has made no... Um, no bones about this here. He believes that this, I'll call it lighter Stelco, a Stelco that's been unencumbered by its environmental concerns, its pension concerns, and its debt concerns, he thinks it could be a very successful and limber and nimble kind of company out in the marketplace. I just need to give him a little more time to see if he can make all that happen. But to your point earlier about, uh, well, you know, it, their best case scenario. Is this not really a chicken and egg situation then, uh, Marvin? It, 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 they want to get more contracts. They want to get you know more business coming in, and that, that's obviously the job one here. But if they show that they're ready, willing, and able to actually get this thing rolling again, doesn't that enhance their chances of getting that business? Yes, I, I agree with what you're saying. I just need to remind everybody that six months ago or seven months ago, this was a company still in creditor protection. So you, you know you can say a lot of good things, uh, you have to start doing things, and then you get positive momentum going. I'm not saying for a moment this company doesn't have positive momentum, and much of this is due to Mr. Kestenbaum, the owner. He, uh, The only way I can describe him, Bill, to your audience is, is to think of somebody like a Warren Buffett, that if Mr. Buffett suddenly comes up to a company and says, I want to put some money in it, even if people have some doubts about the company, they go, well, hey, Warren's a pretty cl sharp character. If Warren likes it, I'm going to like it too. And that's the way Mr. Kestenbaum is viewed in much of this primary metals world. In other words, if Alan Kestenbaum thinks this company's got a future, well, maybe it does. It was on that basis, and not maybe not alone, but certainly on that basis that the initial public offering of stock, which they did in October, that was the first initial public offering of stock in a steel company in Canada in more than 50 years. That's usually considered a bad thing. Who would want to invest in steel? And yet they attracted $250 million. No problem. And it would seem to me that with the power of Mr. Kestenbaum, they, if they want to, can even get more cash to do more things. He has that kind of aura about him in the industry. I still need to see it translate into some more sales. But look, the positive momentum is always great to see. Let me ask you about land, uh, which is a, a, a secondary issue. But we've had that discussion over the last couple of weeks, and, and of course the, the 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 impetus for that was the the uh, reevaluation of those Stelco lands that have been sitting dormant, many of them anyway, for so many years now. And uh, the city was counting on revenue from the sale of that, and so were the pensioners actually to try to top up their fund. Mm -hmm. Now I have heard another rumor, and I'm sure you have too, Marvin, that uh, that with this uh, interest from Bedrock and trying to get things going, and we don't know how extensive that's going to be yet that they may actually need some of that land that previously we thought was going to be on the, on the market for sale. Have you heard anything about that? Mm -hmm. 
so that's absolutely that's correct. Uh, the, the initial plan had been that the site of these blast furnaces, starting with the smokestacks, but then ultimately the buildings that the, these furnaces were in, were all to be demolished, and then that would be considered brownfield land that would be to be redeveloped. Uh, in other words, it would also mean that Stelco would be leasing back from the land company a smaller footprint. If they were to restart these blast furnaces and put money in to do so, they would have to lease even more land. That would be less to be redeveloped, but then on the flip side of this, it would be more jobs, more activity, uh, and, and you know, still more property taxes and things like that for the city. So we're still in flux at this point. The land company has not been developed. That's why the monitor still exists. The way I understand it is that they have begun to identify some board members, and they're actually spending some money to legally create this. I suspect in the first half of 2018, the actual members of the land company will be announced to the public, and then that's when the old process will end. But then that question then becomes, well, how much land do you redevelop? How much do you remediate? How much are you leasing to Stelco? And this is why I think at this point, Stelco is keeping his options open, but they won't be able to keep those options open forever without spending money. If they want to say to Landco, look, don't redevelop that land, leave that where it is, we may want it in two or three years, they're going to have to pay for those options, and that's going to cost them money. Probably not costing them that much today, but it will cost them more down the road if they say to this Landco, don't develop that land. Let's talk about economic impact, and, and obviously if this, uh, this plant starts to become whole again and they start producing steel and they get the blast furnace up and running, uh, that's great news, obviously, for Stelco employees. But at the same time, uh, as you mentioned, there's considerable cost and that probably considerable construction that's involved. That's, uh, that's got to be an economic uplift. Yeah, no, all of that stuff is good news, Bill. What, what you don't want is warehousing space. Warehousing space doesn't create many jobs. It's a big honking building, but there's only three people working inside. To have an active blast furnace, whether it's one blast furnace, two, or in the grand scheme of things, three, that means jobs and lots of jobs. We'd be talking hundreds of jobs back at the Stelco site, which would be great news, perhaps, perhaps, some of the more senior workers who were forced into retirement and let's say they're late 40s, early 50s, there may be jobs for them to come back. All of that is going to be good news. I just don't want to get the cart in front of the horse until we get a better sense of where Stelco is coming from on this. I think Mr. Kestenbaum, he's a very clever man. He wants to keep as many of his options open, and for a relatively small amount of money he was able to do so here in the fall. It will cost him more going forward, and he's going to have to make some choices. Does he go to the left, go to the right, go down the middle? But if his decision is to restart blast furnaces, it would be a marvelous day for Hamilton uh, and, and be something that we'd really be cheering about. All right, so the good news story here, if we can just bottom line this, is yep. they've decided to keep these, 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 uh, these stacks open, and that's good, because if they had demolished them, that probably would have sent us a sign that these guys really don't have any long-term plans here. So, so you're, as you've articulated, they've kept their options open on that. Or certainly no long-term plans for steelmaking. So right yeah. now what they're using the land for, finishing the cold mill, the, the zinc line making coke, they still wanted to do those things, but they weren't making steel by keeping the furnaces, or excuse me, the stacks open. They keep the option open to redo uh, steelmaking here in Hamilton. Okay, so we're kind of in a holding pattern now. I mean, and then that's good because it's better than a demolition pattern. Right, exactly. So, way to think of it. but what do you need to hear to raise your eyebrow and say, oh, wait a second here? 
Well, this company, Stelco, because they sold the stock in October, now have to file some quarterly reports just to the stockholders in general. They, there's a level of transparency we're going to have now that we didn't have when it looked like it was going to be a privately held company. And I want to see that sales numbers are going up, that they are winning contracts, that volumes being produced are going up, and thus the more they uh, grow the company, the more they're going to need more steelmaking capacity at some point. Now, they have that at Nanticoke. They're not operating at 100% capacity down at Nanticoke. So initially, if there's more demand for their products, they can accommodate them there. But the closer the capacity of Nanticoke gets to 75 80%, the more it might seem likely that, well, they're doing such a great job of winning back these contracts, they may need to restart steelmaking in Hamilton. We're going to start seeing these about every three months. Um, I think the, the, the next one we should likely see will happen uh, probably later this month for the quarter since the stock was issued, uh, maybe in, in mid-February, so sometime in the next six weeks. And that will tell us something about it, and then we just need to track it over time. Is it going in the right direction, or was it a one-hit wonder? These reports will tell us a lot about what's going on there. All right, I don't want to spoil the party here, but uh, there are these NAFTA negotiations yep. that uh, at some point are going to heat up. Uh, and, and obviously we need to export. I mean, that, yep. that's that's what we do. That's what Stelco does. Uh, are those negotiations going to have an impact on, on the hopeful uh, recovery and, and perhaps rejuvenation of this plant? Yeah, so that's a really good question, Bill. And I, I actually asked that of uh, uh, not Mr. Kestenbaum, but Mr. Cheney, who's sort of his second in command or, or third in command. And he gave me a wonderful answer. He said, uh, Marvin, when we need to, we're going to say that this is a Canadian company. And when we need to, we're going to say it's an American company. In other words, the stock is traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange, but for many purposes, its head office is in New York State. Uh, and I think they're going to try to play this game to whichever way it goes. If NAFTA opens, the doors, they'll fl they'll flood in and say, yeah, we're a Canadian company, welcome to the United States. If the NAFTA looks like it's going to close the doors, they're going to say, wait a minute, we're, we're part of the system. Oh, sure, some of that steel is made in Canada, but look, we're a proud American company here. I think they're going to be rather clever in playing both sides of this, uh, regardless of what Donald Trump wants. Interesting strategy. Marvin, thanks for the clarity on this. Really appreciate the time today. Anytime, Bill. Marvin Ryder, of course, at the DeGroote School of Business. And uh, fingers crossed, uh, the Stelco situation could be getting a whole lot better in 2018. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. As we've uh, been talking about uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, this is a pretty important year from an electoral standpoint uh, here in Ontario. There is a provincial election coming up in June, and of course municipal elections uh, this, this fall. But uh, the provincial election, very pivotal. And uh, very, very unpredictable at this stage. I mean, we know that the Liberals have been in power for a number of years, and we know that not too long ago uh, they were setting all-time lows when it came to popularity. But that seems to be changing. And there's an interesting editorial in the Toronto Star the other day. It's entitled, Will Patrick Brown Be Kathleen Wynne's Greatest Achievement? Now, obviously, the, the title of, of the editorial is steeped in sarcasm, but it's, uh, it's all about how we all seem to be moving to the middle politically here, which is very unusual in this province, given what's happened since the early 1990s and the way the conservative movement was, with very little success, obviously, aside from the, the victory of Mike Harris a couple of times back in, the, in that decade. Joining us to talk about this phenomenon is Christo Avela, Social Science and Humanities Research Council, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto. Christo, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. I mean, let me talk about about what the star is writing about here, and it's uh, something that I think has raised quite a few eyebrows. Is you know, in in past provincial elections, at least the last four or five, anyway, 
there has been a pretty distinct philosophical choice for voters to make here. Is, is it a fair argument to be making that, uh, that that those lines have been blurred over the last couple of weeks and months? I mean, to a certain degree, I, I certainly think that, you know, the, cons- the progressive conservatives in Ontario, um, you know, had a certain line. It probably wasn't as, as stark as Harris or, or, or the old Reform Party, but, but under Hudak especially, there was a sense that, look, we're going to offer a, a, a pretty conservative option to the voters. We're going to be open about that. And it didn't work. And I think that, uh, you know, the success of the, of the Trudeau Liberals winning power uh, federally, and, and I think, you know, frankly, conservatism not really getting a good look based from our friends down south, I think the conservatives in Ontario um, feel that they have to go in a more uh, Bill Davis direction and offer a kind of a more center-right option. And I think that, you know, I don't really think that has much to do with Kathleen Wynne, frankly. I think that has to do more with their kind of internal understandings. But, but it is a trend that I see. So this is not really a conversion on the road to Damascus. This may well just be politically astute. To, yeah, to a certain degree, or maybe it's, you know, for the longest, I guess more accurately I would say that maybe this is the progressive conservatives returning to what they are. You know, maybe the Mike Harris decade and a bit generation, if you want to call it, was an anomaly. And that's not really the kind of politics most Ontarians want. They don't want rabid anti-unionism. They don't want rabid anti uh, you know, government rhetoric. They don't want, uh, you know, somebody taking almost joy in the fact that he's going to fire 100,000 workers. I don't think Ontarians necessarily want that. And maybe the progressive conservatives have said, well, you know, the experiment hasn't worked. Maybe what works with, you know, in, in Alberta to a certain degree or has worked historically in Alberta maybe isn't the kind of conservatism that works in, in, in Ontario. And I think maybe that's more of a return to, to normalcy for the conservatives rather than a any kind of conversion. To that point, Crystal, that's an interesting observation, because uh, I think the point the star is trying to make is that is that the success, the 14-year success of the Liberals, even though they oftentimes are, are suffering in the public opinion polls, end up getting re-elected, in, in the last case with a majority government once again, uh, and, and they're suggesting that maybe that is, is what's uh, been a factor in, in the, uh, the formation of, of the, the conservative brand and, and the way that Patrick Brown is trying to move the party right now. Is, is that the case, or is it maybe just the conservatives looking a little further back in the rearview mirror and saying, hey, we held power in this province for 42 years when we were a moderate government. Maybe that's where we should go. You know, I think, I mean, I don't think the star's uh, piece is fully off base. I, I do think that, yes, they're, they're, they're probably looking at how Kathleen Wynne, much like how the conservatives again, for that 40-plus year period, were able to kind of move from, you know, the slight center-left to the moderate center-right. I I think that both the liberals and conservatives in this province historically are are center-right parties to varying degrees. But how, you know, Bill Davis and all those other premiers um, were able to, you know, at times, for instance, you know, be rapidly conservative on on some social issues and on, on communism, for instance, but then propose, you know, pretty groundbreaking social programs and and really balancing that 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 you know that act, and I think that Kathleen Wynne is is somewhat successful in doing that. Maybe they are pulling some lessons, but again, they can pull it both from the kind of contemporary politics and their own party's history. It, it's interesting to see the reaction from the leaders as uh, these policies and as these platforms start to evolve. Uh, and you've got the NDP on on the left. Uh, complaining to the liberals and saying, well, you're stealing our policies. You've got Kathleen Wynne in the middle there, at least, uh, you, you're right, I think it's center-right, but at least in the middle, 
uh, complaining that Patrick Brown is stealing their policies. Uh, and at the same time, we the voters are looking at this and saying, well, wait a second, who stands for what right now? Because this seems to be a, a, a almost a, a potpourri now of, of political ideologies. Yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, I you know, the, with with the NDP, I, I think it's rather interesting. I, I mean, I don't fully agree with the message that their their policies being stolen. I certainly think their their thematics are being stolen. For instance, and I think the Liberals are really good at that. They're really good at at that messaging. They even had uh, just before Christmas, they had a couple social media ads, and the ads were were orange in the background. Uh, you know, so I think that there's a sense that. They, they understand there's a lot of soft NDP liberal kind of swing voters that they want to get, especially in urban areas that are going to be important to whether it's holding on to their majority or maybe seeking out a minority or, or what have you. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, there's a lot of policy difference still. You know, some people have said, well, the liberals have stole the NDP's pharmacare policy, but they really didn't. They proposed a wholly different policy. You know, their policy is all drugs covered for people under 25, whereas the NDP said, look, we're going to start with the most common drugs for everybody and then build towards a universal system. And likewise, uh, you know, the Liberals kind of adopting some of the labor policies on Bill 148, like the $15 minimum wage and a few others, really ignored a lot of the other core demands from the Ontario Federation of Labor and the NDP around car check certification, around um, sectoral bargaining, and, and other issues that would you know, make uh, more fundamental change rather than just the minimum wage increase. So there's still a lot of policy difference, and the Conservatives as well. I mean, you know, certainly uh, the, the kind of vindictiveness that people saw in Tim Hudak and his team is gone, but the Conservatives are still, you know, trying to portray themselves as, as the party of, of business, um, you know, not anti-government, but, but pro-business. And I think that the, the Liberals will try to do that as well, but uh, I think right now are trying to kind of play in between those two camps. So I think, you know, voters can, can get a, a different suite of policies. But you're right, maybe, especially between the Liberals and Conservatives, um, it's much less stark than it was in, in 2014. And, and the interesting point about this is, as you said, it's the philosophical approach to this. And and the knock against Tim Hudak, and we had Tim on the show many times uh, when he was the opposition leader, uh, and, and I was pretty forthright, but I mean, he was, let's face it, he was raised, his political thing was as the Common Sense Revolution, as a, an advocate of Mike Harris. I mean, he was, that was his first time he got elected, and that seemed obviously to be his philosophy, which I think is what surprised an awful lot of people, that uh, that when Patrick Brown and, and the conservatives announced that uh, they're, they're, they're the bare bones of their policy, some of the contentious issues that they've been fighting for the last number of years in the Ontario legislature, they've basically said, no, we'll leave that alone. Uh, we, we don't like the minimum wage increase, but we're not going to touch it. We'll delay the, the, the next phase of it, but we're not going to roll it back. Uh, we're going to leave a lot of the, the other problems at the Pharmacare program. That's fine. The free tuition, yeah, we're going to do that. That's very unlike uh, what we've seen from progressive conservative policies really in the last 20 years. No, you're right. I think, you know, with the conservatives... Um, you know, with in the Mike Harris era, they were really they were radicals, and uh, you know when they they were not conservatives in 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 the kind of small C sense, in that because they were they weren't trying to conserve, they were trying to break down, they were trying to to break down Ontario society and really rebuild it. And a lot of people, you know, didn't like what they broke down and what they rebuilt, but the reality is they did it, and we still kind of live in Mike Harris's era to a certain degree today, and some and many factors, but. You're right, this government or, you know, this conservative party, uh, you know, that's trying to become government, 
um, really, at least ostensibly, at least in how they're running, of course, governments can, can change their minds after they win, um, seems to be running on a platform of, uh, of continuance with slight revisions. Um, maybe that works. I think if their goal is to get moderates, that's the only path they have. The trickiness is that, as you know, um, the base, the conservative base, which of course is you know a large portion of the province, has you know been fighting on these issues and conservative fundraising emails. I, I wager for the last decade or more have been targeted on you know attacking the the, the out of touch wing government and her reckless spending and keeping the, the socialist NDP out of power, and and all of a sudden there's a capitulation there. And I think maybe that, in addition to the kind of more high-profile social issues around gay rights and abortion and what have you, are part of the reason the Conservative Party is having a lot of internal strife right now, um, you know, within a, a lot of riding associations. But but that's an interesting conundrum, or is it such a, a deep conundrum for the, the progressive conservatives at this stage? Uh, because for those disenchanted people that think that they've moved too much to the middle, where else are they going to go? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, one thing is, you know, in terms of voting, you're right, there's not really another option uh, for, conser- for, for, for people on the right of the Conservative Party. They're probably going to stick with the Conservatives. But, you know, those people might stay home. And enthusiasm is important. Um, enthusiasm uh, played a big role in the 2016 U.S. election. Um, people might not have gone to vote for Trump, but if, you know, if somebody stays home because they're not motivated to vote for Hillary, um, that's effectively a vote for Trump in some cases. Much, like it, much the same could be said here, where if Tim Hudak isn't able to energize his base, he might lose turnout, he might lose energy. And I think more than that, the people who are going to vote are probably going to vote regardless. Um, you know, donor, if donor levels are lower, if volunteer levels are lower, if you don't have the people knocking on the doors, putting up the signs, making the phone calls because they're a little disenchanted, maybe they'll go, they'll bring their family, they'll vote conservative like they always do, and that's great. But if you really want that energized movement of people to get you uh, those wins and those marginal ridings, you need, you need the base. And if you sacrifice them for some votes, you might, you might, you know, pick up some seats somewhere else and lose some close ones because you've lost that base. That's a gamble that any party has to take, really. On that uh, that basis and in that theme again, Christelle, are, are you surprised at, at, at the renaissance that the, the Liberal Party, and I don't mean Kathleen Wynne, because obviously her personal approval ratings still consider uh, considerably lower than, than the other two, but the Liberal Party brand has, has risen. Uh, I mean, I don't think anybody gave them a chance to, of ever getting reelected. I, I heard some, obviously some situations where they said they were going to be decimated in this election. They're essentially neck and neck right now. Does that surprise you? I mean, to a certain degree, it does. But like on, on first glance, you're right. You look at you look at the past few years. You'd say, well, yeah, that's quite surprising. But there are a few factors. One, um, the Trudeau Liberals. Um, who are, are, are strong still federally. They're, they haven't really slipped. I mean, some polls have shown them slip a little bit, but they're still, if the election was to happen today, they'd win another majority probably. Um, so that's probably helping. You know, people, I know the Liberal Party uh, isn't as centralized as the NDP. So, you know, the, the Ontario Liberals and the federal Liberals aren't really the same party, but effectively they are. Um, so the Liberals are getting a positive federal brand. And I think that's helping the provincial liberal brand, if not the provincial liberal premier. I also feel that, frankly, uh, and this is probably one of the reasons Justin Trudeau didn't enact uh, electoral reform, is the liberals have a 60% of the population hostage 
based on this notion of strategic voting. And I think as long as that exists, the liberals will get votes from people who are afraid of the conservatives. And even with Patrick Brown's move to the center, I think a lot of people don't necessarily uh, trust him, um, fairly or not, uh, to actually keep to his kind of, uh, you know, center-right platform. And they're worried that should he get elected, you know, there's going to be right-to-work legislation, there's going to be bans on women's rights. And again, fair or not, I think a lot of people are like, look, I'm going to vote liberal because that's the only way to keep conservatives out. And in that system benefits the Liberal Party. Um, and I think that's what keeps them in a kind of, kind of always, in an ability to always kind of win, even if, you know, people don't like them. Let me ask you about that, because I've heard that same consideration and that same criticism of Patrick Brown. Uh, and, and I guess it's because of his, his pedigree. I mean, when he was in federal politics, he was considered to be an extreme right-wing politician. Uh, and, and some of his philosophical and some of his uh, his moral views on issues. But the, the Patrick Brown that is the provincial leader now, you know, he marches in the gay pride parade. He's he's endorsing this agenda that, that talks about moving more to the center right now. Yet I'm still hearing people describing him as a, as a wolf in sheep's clothing right now. How, how difficult is it to change your political stripe and, more importantly, to get people to accept that you've changed? I mean, it, it's hard. It's hard, right? I mean, I think, uh, you know, First of all, there are groups with vested interests. You know, uh, some unions in this province, for instance, uh, many of which uh, support the new, new Democratic Party. There's a historical mission of working people, but you know, some like SEIU, to a lesser degree, Unifor. Um, you know, have a, you know through groups like Working Ontario Women are are vested in portraying the Conservatives as aggressive because some of these unions really benefit from from the Liberals, um, and I think that. In a sense, it's difficult because there are people whose political strategy is based on portraying you as a, as a you know, arch-conservative. Again, I, I don't know what Patrick Brown can do. I think he's been trying to do it. I think he's been showing that you know, he's going to fight back against some conservative voices in his party in terms of social issues. It's created some heat for him at the riding level. There's been protests. There's been resignations. There's... You know, all of that, all of that unpleasantness, but he's been doing it. And as you say, he's, his, his general platform is more or less the center-right platform. Again, he's marched in the Gay Pride Parade. For instance, Jason Kenney, um, you know, or, or in the Alberta, you know, conservatives, they don't really have that tradition. And Andrew Scheer, the current federal leader, said he won't march in the Gay Pride Parade. So in a sense, you could look at, at Patrick Brown and say, well, compared to the federal conservative leader, um, you know, he's he's pretty progressive on social issues, but I feel that, again, that's going to be the political, the political mantra. It's the same thing with Stephen Harper. That was, that, that's going to be the mantra of especially the Liberal Party, but probably the NDP to a certain degree, is that this guy's lying to you, and if he gets power, he will destroy everything you love about Ontario. And that's the that's the kind of fear, the fear mongering nature of politics. Still five months to go, and that's, uh, that's a lifetime in politics. Christel, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Christo Avalos, of course, at the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.